There is no Europe without Christianity. We need an alliance also with Russia. No migrants more in. Those who are in, back. This is EU Scream, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels, in association with EU Observer. I'm James Cantor. In this episode, can the European Union do more to hold back the kinds of malign forces that overran the U.S. Capitol claiming to defend democracy? It's not an idle question. Democratic shortcomings in the EU are regularly invoked by the far right to whip up nationalist sentiment. The effect has been to weaponize the European project against itself. Rather than a citizen's insurrection, what's been foreseen for the EU is a period of deep and prolonged citizen's reflection. The Conference on the Future of Europe is a once in a political generation opportunity to make the EU more accountable, responsive, and democratic. Citizens chosen by a random lot would hear expert evidence. They deliberate and debate and make proposals that EU authorities need to act upon. Making sure such a conference delivers results is an immense challenge and is already badly behind schedule. Professor Alberto Alamano of HEC Paris is a leading voice on democratization, and he takes up those issues and more later this episode. First, we hear from Gwendoline Delbos Corfield. She's a Green member of the European Parliament from France who coordinates on rule of law in Hungary. She's also a member of the Committee on Constitutional Affairs that's been pushing to get the conference underway, and she's now concerned it may not happen at all. How hard are you and your committee, the Constitutional Committee, pushing to get the conference on the future of Europe underway, especially after what we saw in Washington on Capitol Hill? For sure, amongst those that feel concerned, those that are very involved already, it will be a new shot of urgency and and we will feel it. And of course, I mean, this is going to give us arguments to go back to the council, come back to the commission to say how much they must take this seriously. And we can find also even more will and consensus in the parliament. At the same time, there's a bit of resignation or despair sometimes even because, of course, the the main discussions that has been going on since the beginning of this new term of the parliament is who would be in charge of this conference. And then, of course, there's the sanitary crisis. And the sanitary crisis is a very, very good tool. And I'm not saying that it it's used in a voluntary way. It's sometimes not used as a voluntary way, but in the end, it doesn't help either. So you've got a big, big motivation, but in parallel, the feeling that it's difficult to think that it's going to happen. Let me put it this way. If we are getting these signals from around the world, such as we saw in Washington, and there are not efforts like a conference on the future of Europe to involve citizens more in what is a fairly opaque entity like the European Union for many citizens, is that a danger for the European Union? Of course, it is a danger. Um, It's not the only one. In general, I'm following a number of states where a rule of law is no more completely there. You've got, of course, Brexit. So the signals that we are in threat are there. When you think about the degree to which people have questioned European democracy, say in the Brexit campaign, say when Orban whips up his own citizens, there are questions here that are very, very serious about how citizens can 
reject entirely the European process. What's interesting in the American situation, uh, be it the campaign, the election itself or now, is that this awful crisis and how far this former president went with all these people made people, in fact, get involved and concerned again. Sadly, human beings seems also to be much more sensitive to very big crises than to the will of doing better when it's, things are quite fine. And I wonder if at the moment in Parliament we're not in this situation of, you know, the, the sleeping beauty, the crisis is not there enough so that we really feel the urgency. Assuming the conference does go ahead at some point, should the conference be looking at structural changes to the entire EU? And to take two examples, there could be the direct election of a European Commission president, and there could be giving the European Parliament the right of legislative initiative. So I think that there's a number of ideas that could come out and we would have to see and we shouldn't have a forehand plan. But we've been working around and we were looking for what we really thought would be important. And then we came out with this idea of what would be a European citizenship. What does it give you as rights? What does it obliges you to? And that would probably create some attention. And then we would hope in a sort of snowball that media starts talking about it and not only media in the Brussels bubble or in a country like France where European issues are nearly never discussed, that it would bring attention and then it would create a sort of a, a renew of the European feeling. But how do we break the logjam that is posed by choosing who should lead the conference on the future of Europe? we do need someone and we need someone that believes in it and wants to incarnate it. If we were given a civil servant that is only there to organize things, I would moan about this for for sure. I would complain. There is more and more this thing about people saying it should be a woman. Why not? Of course, it would have had made sense that it was someone from the parliament. I think not choosing someone from the parliament is a way of once again trying to put us on the side. So it's not very good that it's not a member of the parliament. But to be honest, if it was to stop us for still two years just because of that, I don't think we should, you know, I, I would not fight for that. So Alberto, how serious a situation is the EU in with regard to the way it's being run in your view? Well, the EU and its operation remain pretty undecipherable to the many and oftentimes even to the insiders. And this complexity is is set to grow even further. And this is making European literacy even lower uh, and more problematic. And this is also enabling the member states of the union to blame the EU. We all know this kind of game. Right. So the the narrative there is that people blame the EU because they simply don't understand the way the EU works. Yeah, I've been writing over the years that the issue is not really a democratic deficit, but is rather an intelligibility deficit, meaning extremely complicated to unpack uh, for a broader audience uh, by the media, by civil society organization, and by companies themselves. And unless the union will be democratized in the future, so it will solve its democratic intelligibility issue, it might deteriorate even further. Okay, so given what we saw on Capitol Hill in Washington, where the mob justified their insurrection on the basis that they'd 
lost faith in the legitimacy of democracy, I'm minded to say even more than ever that we better not get citizen involvement wrong in EU affairs. So how does the example of the capital riots inform the way that you're thinking about the need and the urgency for a meaningful conference on the future of Europe? The loss of faith in, in the democratic process is a universal phenomenon. It is made even further complicated at the scale of the European Union. And it might seem far-fetched to imagine similar events happening at the European level uh, should people attack the parliament in Strasbourg or in Brussels, <laughs> but less so at the member state level. What if Viktor Orban will lose the next election? Will he recognize the result? The events in DC, they tell us that there might be some form of imitation occurring across countries and also across the Atlantic, because at the end of the day, a precedent has been set. And so much of Orban's rhetoric in Hungary is against the EU. You know, a conference that can illuminate what the EU really means might, I suppose, diminish those forces. So I think some of the attacks against the union by Viktor Orban, but also by PIS in Poland, are not too far from the rhetoric of Trump challenging his own institutions. But drawing parallel between what is happening in America and in Europe is not so immediate, methodologically and analytically, but certainly there are some political elements suggesting that what we're witnessing in Washington, D.C. might potentially uh, lend itself to further adaptations in the soil of, of Europe. And to what degree do you think the EU, so the people in charge of the EU, actually want to be addressing this problem of the involvement of citizens and governance? Well, this is a, a legitimate question to ask. Uh, since uh, the end of the 90s, we have been asking ourselves the same question. Uh, what a role, if any, any citizens should play in the European Union. The uh, elephant in the room have always been the citizens. Uh, what is the role, if not that of consumers uh, of this big, big market? Yet uh, the way in which the conference was concocted uh, among the European institutions suggests very limited sensibility to the idea that citizens should play a role in co-designing uh, such, such a conference, which of course is already quite telling. And there's been a delay of its launch. Yes. 10 months, uh, potentially one year. But your, your thought is that actually this delay may have partially saved this exercise. Yes, I think the delay has created many opportunities for experts, consultants, academics to somehow influence the design of the conference, potentially capturing the input coming from the public about major issues from the public health emergency to potentially odd issues like migration or the future of technologies and the attempt of the European Union to govern uh, the emergence of those technologies. This conference has its antecedents in some of what President Emmanuel Macron sees as the virtues of citizens' assemblies. Is that right? This conference has been identified as a French-sponsored and potentially French-led initiative because it was announced across European newspapers that uh, President Macron wrote showing his desire to give a voice to citizens. The conference uh, will also be a French-led initiative 
because one of its main components will be the citizens' assembly. So this idea of injecting some deliberation uh, within decision-making processes by giving the chance to randomly selected citizens to actually advise political representatives on the way forward. France has been probably be one of the first European countries to jump on the bandwagon of citizens' assemblies that allow hundreds of citizens randomly selected to come up with a set of recommendations directed to the representatives in France. So this is the model that might be introduced. Some nuts and bolts. I mean, when do you think this conference will finally get underway? And who should we blame for the delay? Well, contrary to conventional wisdom, uh, the delay of the launch of the Conference of Europe shouldn't be ascribed to COVID, but is rather the result of uh, long-standing uh, conflicts existing among the three institutions, as well as the member states themselves. There's very little political appetite among member states, including the big ones like Germany, to follow this French uh, design. What is a country like Germany afraid of in a process like this? I mean, Germany, in many ways, rules the roost in the EU. And if you open things up, you could jeopardize that. Absolutely. And I think this is a critical point. The pro-European camp is extremely afraid of reopening the Pandora's box of competences and treaty revision. But I think it is worth taking uh, such a risk today because the issue we're facing in Europe from the rule of law and partly the unfolding of Brexit, these are the conversation we need to have now at the proper scale, which is the pan-European one. And this inevitably will translate into some new dynamics of pressure, expectations, and this is absolutely new. Historically, any forms of consultation, any forms of opening up of the institutions have been extremely controlled since the beginning with very little margin. One of the issues is this idea of a chairperson. Several former prime minister's names have been debated. Uh, who are they and um, what's the best plan here? <laughs> Yeah, it, it really it really seems that most of the conversation among political leaders on the conference has been on the issue of chairmanship. It really looks like an obsession. It is a power game. And uh, there are several names, as you said, that have been uh, used uh, since the very beginning, like Guy Verhofstadt. Who's a former Belgian prime minister. He's sort of an ultra-federalist liberal in the European parliament. Given off that uh, was kind of promise uh, politically that he would have been running the show in the conference. But we all know that no support uh, actually materialized. And then we have Hella Thorning-Schmidt, who's a former Danish prime minister. She's potentially perceived as uh, slightly fresher uh, than Given Ofsted in her pro-European uh, stance. Uh, she's a woman, uh, which is absolutely great in terms of slightly more diversity than, than usual. But even there, not everybody seems convinced. And that's why the name of former prime minister uh, like Enrico Letta from Italy or Alex Stubb, who is a former Finnish prime minister, uh, have also been, been mentioned and continue to, to circulate today. And as it is often the case, there might be some new names that might be popping up in the coming days or, or weeks. But my big question really here is, do we really need a chair? What about having co-chairs? But there is also a broader question. Why should we have a chair with a politician and not a civil society representative? I think that's a great idea. You know, spreading the love 
to civil society. I, I really think we need to flip entirely the old paradigm of a top-down conference and making it bottom-up. And what a better way. The model is offered by the Open Government Partnership. So the Open Government Partnership is a model or it's a potential convener? No, it's rather a model. So you have an NGO chairman and you have also a state chairman. And they play exactly the same role. They have the same uh, prerogatives. What are the chances that this conference will end up male, pale, and stale like last time? And here, by last time, I mean the early 2000s. There was this convention on the future of Europe. This upcoming conference is not the EU's first rodeo when it comes to big gatherings to discuss the role of citizens in the European project. The leadership of the Conference on the Future of Europe will matter as it did during the earlier effort called the Convention on the Future of Europe, where Giver Hofstad himself, then Prime Minister of Belgium, chose and pushed for uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, the former uh, French president, a conservative modernizer who recently passed away in his 90s. But this proved somehow suicidal. Yeah, indeed. The forthcoming conference it does for some seem reminiscent of this ill-fated convention on the future of Europe from the early 2000s, which drafted the EU's constitution that was never ratified. But I'm curious, those are strong words about the way that Valérie Giscard d'Estaing was overseeing the convention. You refer to it as suicidal. Yeah, th that conference uh, offered a glimpse of all what's wrong with the European Union. Uh, Elite-driven, uh, complacent, out-of-touch, top-down. In this role, a Valéry Giscard d'Estaing leadership, which was extremely aristocratic, which was extremely coming from old Europe and not listening anybody, 95% of this uh, constitutional treaty, which was drafted during two years, were basically taken up uh, by uh, the French uh, presidency of the Union at the time, by Sarkozy, and transformed into the Lisbon Treaty despite negative referendum in France and in the Netherlands. So in a way, that conference really damaged, tarnished uh, the image of the European Union in the eyes of the European citizens. It's quite clear that this convention from the early 2000s was top-down. However, citizens were not entirely without influence. And one of the memories I have of that period was how Christians and anti-abortionists were seeking to inject God into European affairs. I remember that very vividly. I was a student in the United States and uh, I had the chance to invite uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, but also Julian Amato and Jean-Luc Dehaene, the, the former uh, Belgium and Italian prime minister, uh, Jean-Luc Dehaene and Julian Amato were siding as deputy of Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. We hosted at the Kennedy School and Harvard Law School over a week. We had so many conferences. They were really on a road tour to promote the convention that they just uh, wrote. It was the Constitution of Europe. Neither, I would say, Amato or Dean had been taking a stance on the Judeo-Christian debate at, at the time. They were kind of uh, secular in, in their approach. Valéry Giscard d'Estaing was a bit more tricky to understand where he actually uh, sat. He certainly played a pivotal role in opening up the door to some of these voices. There was a lot 
lot of lobbying and they have lost their battle, but they might try in the future, in, in the coming uh, weeks and months, most probably. With that in mind, how do you think the increasingly illiberal and vocal stance of some Eastern European countries like Hungary and Poland, particularly on anti-LGBT and their hostility to migrants, and broadly speaking, their promotion of the Judeo-Christian model, they could hijack it in a sense. Is there that, that concern? Well, this raises, I think, the broader question of whether the realities of Europe will find reflection in the conference on the future of Europe itself. We, we really don't know whether they will engage uh, with a, a European-sponsored, European-led initiative. This will be a big question mark. Do you want to engage on the European level uh, in, a, in a European exercise if you're uh, kind of a nationalist at heart? Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a common dilemma and the EU should make an effort to ensure everybody an incentive and a possibility to enter into such a conversation, to be listened to, to feel comfortable and to actually contribute to, to such a conversation. I, I, <laughs> I, can, I can see all kinds of issues arising, like the idea of no platforming, you know, the anti-LGBT crowd, which I'm not sure I would entirely disagree with. Those will be interesting debates if and when they arise. Of course. This conference on the future of Europe is less ambitious in the sense that there's no explicit mandate this time to revise the treaties compared to what was going on with the Convention on the Future of Europe in the early 2000s. But it's much more ambitious this time around in the sense that citizens really, really, really are supposed to be involved. And what if the EU here, or what if we here, are sort of making a category error, trying to make a project that's by definition not democratic, at least by any traditional definition, feel democratic? And certainly ever since its conception in the 1950s, it's been a club of nations. It was born in an ivory tower. The heads of state and government are still more or less all-powerful, and France and Germany tend to set the terms of the debate. And I, I hate to say this, but I fear that any conference on the future of Europe will be sort of putting, quotes, lipstick on a pig from the point of view of what constitutes meaningful democracy. Uh, James, I agree. I've been probably one of the most critical voices at the time this conference was uh, presented to the public as a game changer for the union. I'm also very skeptical about the ability of this type of ad hoc conferences to fix a deeply structural issue in the union. At the same time, I also think that we need to somehow take the risk of embracing an ambitious project that might potentially attract many organizations, which tend to be and operate in a fragmented way across Europe, and to feed them into a transnational political conversation. The original sin, as you've conceived it, on the part of Ursula von der Leyen, it's the democratic vacuum that the process of her appointment sort of created. The major issue in the designation of Ursula von der Leyen as President of the European Commission, she didn't prepare what I often refer to as a parliamentary majority. Even today, Ursula von der Leyen has no permanent fixed majority within the European Parliament. So her link 
uh, with the elected is extremely tenuous, is ambivalent, is ambiguous. So if you think about the genesis of, of this conference and the reason why it was mentioned is because Ursula von der Leyen just being designated in a very surprised fashion by the head of state and government, she had to justify to the public why she was the lucky one. So there is a salvific attempt here. We want to save the union. And in order to do so, we need to open up more than we've been doing in the past. I mean, isn't the idea of an intelligibility deficit sort of music to the ears of the EU institutions themselves who always just say we need to be better understood? And I guess I would also ask, isn't it the case that in order to win over citizens, to really win them over, there may need to be a, a major shift in how power is doled out in the EU? So there's no more rather arbitrary seeming appointments like that of Ursula von der Leyen Failing to deal with that issue means you've potentially got even more pressure building up against the EU and eventually, I suppose, an explosive situation, perhaps of the insurrectionist kind. Much of what is wrong in Europe today can be ascribed to the lack of the intelligibility of the political system. How can we explain that the European Popular Party, counting the ranks, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, CDU, and Viktor Orban, Fidesz? Both, meaning both Fidesz and Merkel, they could afford such an ambiguity because that party is not known, is not visible to their own electorate. In particular, this is true in Germany, where most of the German citizens, when voting CDU in the European elections, are not even aware that they are supporting indirectly also Fidesz. Without a similar level of intelligibility as we have at the national level, citizens won't have any reference point. Brussels should deserve the visibility which, in terms of power, already has, but is not perceived as such. We have limited knowledge at the moment about what the mechanisms will be in order to involve citizens in this conference on the future of Europe, particularly with COVID still raging. But we can Pretty, I mean, it's going to be a safe bet that a lot of it will be virtual. Would it be vast Zoom meetings and message boards? What, what, would, it, what would it look like? Uh, it will probably be something that looks like a platform uh, that allows virtually everybody in a few clicks to communicate in his own language and being automatically translated uh, into the language of the recipient so as to create those kind of transnational conversations that we never managed to actually have, not even in the media space, as we have been writing for, for, for many years. It's not going to happen in one language. It's not going to happen in one country. It has to happen transnationally. And there's very little experience on how to organize such a, a deliberation uh, process in a transnational way. Yeah, I mean, my, my response is, Give me the app. <laughs> I'll, definitely be I'll definitely be using it. But one question is, how much awareness would there be about that app or whatever the platform is? You know, How will citizens who, at the moment, don't care that much or don't think that much about the EU anyway, even find out about such an opportunity? That, to me, seems often to be one of the great challenges of the European project. 
Absolutely, James. Uh, I, I really am extremely concerned about the attempt by the union to create yet another platform nobody will be using. And I think this is a legitimate concern. Uh, European applications uh, haven't been very successful. There are very few people on there. So I think here we need some more creativity and embedding these channels through pre-existing platform where the attention is, uh, like the social media. But this obviously raises a lot of important issues about whether it is appropriate for the European institutions to leverage on pre-existing platforms they are by themselves governing or trying to, to govern. So I'm extremely curious, as you are, to see which would be the technological solution uh, that will enable this uh, conference on the future of Europe to happen online. Yeah, I can see how using an established social media platform for the Conference on the Future of Europe could be problematic now that these platforms are under such intense scrutiny for feeding the kinds of lies and disinformation that help foment the capital riots and other violence and hate. The pre-existing platforms, the existing platforms, are basically seen more and more as hubs for organizing extremists rather than as a tool for organizing a democratically-minded citizenry. So this is a, an existential question for the Conference on the Future of Europe. I don't think the EU will be able to reinvent the wheel in such a short uh, period of time, but certainly it will feel under pressure not to uh, overuse uh, the very same platforms it is trying uh, to regulate and govern. It is a very difficult position to be in. Now, I just wonder, like, how might citizens' proposals or citizens' ideas, what are the potential ways of thinking about how many of them we should take into account? Yes, it's absolutely the million-dollar question everybody's asking. We all hope that the joint declaration among the three institutions that we launch the conference itself in the coming weeks, months, uh, will define this question. If you look at France, it could be a number of proposals, uh, like uh, 50 out of 100. It could be a percentage of those proposals. A, a percentage of those proposals that go forward for approval or for further consideration? For further consideration. Right. Mm -hmm for further consideration. So when we look at the outcome of the conference, we're basically looking at one of the most complicated issues in modern democracy today. Yeah. How do we ensure the interface between the participatory input, what citizens want and expect, and the representative input? In other words, how our political representatives should process and use the political ideas coming from society? Failing to do so, the Conference on the Future of Europe will lose credibility in the Union as a result. That's it for this episode. EU Scream's nonprofit journalism is supported by listener donations, partnerships, and advertising. And we're grateful to the Laura Kinsella Foundation for an annual grant. For more details and for more episodes of EU Scream, visit our website at euscream.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>